Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is science fiction novelist, blogger, and technology activist Cory Doctorow. We're going to talk about technology, intellectual property, and privacy, among other topics. In a recent column, Doctorow says that all the data collected in giant databases today will breach someday, and when it does, it will ruin people's lives. They will have their houses stolen from under them by identity thieves who forge their deeds. This is already happening. They will end up with criminal records because identity thieves will use their personal information to commit crimes. This is already happening. They will uh, have their devices compromised using passwords and personal data that leaked from old accounts, and the hackers will spy on them through their baby monitors, cars, set-top boxes, and medical implants. This is already happening. We're uh, very pleased to have with us uh, today a science fiction novelist, blogger, technology activist, Cory Doctorow. Uh, he was in Utah in the spring uh, giving a uh, talk to a uh, University of Utah on security, privacy, and their surveillance. We're happy to have him uh, with us uh, today. He's a co-editor of the popular web blog, uh, Boing Boing. Is that how you say that? I'm not familiar with it. That's right. Okay. Um, a contributor to The Guardian, uh, publishes weekly, Wired, many other newspapers, magazines, websites. He's a special consultant to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. If you're not familiar with them, they're a nonprofit civil liberties group that defends freedom and technology, law, policy, standards, and treaties. He's also an award-winning author of numerous young adult novels, uh, including Little Brother and uh, Homeland. Uh, Cory Doctor, what's uh, what's your latest uh, the books uh, coming out? So the next book, I actually write books for adu- for adults too. The last book I had out was a middle grade graphic novel I worked on with Jen Wang called uh, In Real Life. And the next book I have coming out is my first adult novel since 2009. It's called Walk Away, and Tor will publish it next April. It has uh, many claims to fame, but my favorite one right now is it sports the first blurb that Edward Snowden ever wrote. Oh, really? You got a blurb from Edward yeah. Snowden. Uh, have, have you talked with him? You've, have you interviewed him? Oh, no, only on mm. Twitter. Oh, on Twitter. Okay, you've, you've uh, gone back and forth with, with Edward Snowden. Yeah. Um, so lots to talk about. I want to begin just with a little bit from, from your background. You, you grew up in Toronto? That's right. Uh, yeah. there, there's a the pen- city that never sleeps in. Yeah. <laughs> the city that never sleeps in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, uh, in general, what was it like growing up in Toronto? No, I, I, although I, I make fun of it. it uh, I think Toronto is a fantastic place to have grown up in the um, 70s and 80s. It was at the time an extremely livable city. It had um, extensive protection for tenants, uh, and it had many policies that damped real estate speculation, which meant that the most basic thing that you need to live in a city, a shelter, was really well taken care of. It's a very diverse city and always has been, uh, but it, it has many claims to fame now in, in that regard. The one that people cite most often is that uh, it has residents from who were born in more countries than any other city in the world. Uh, and so it's very multicultural. It has about six Chinatowns. It has a Greek town where all the street signs are still in Greek. Uh, and was a, was a, overall a very good place to grow up in, you know, around the time that um, the uh, slashes and cuts were being made to U.S. social safety net. Uh, Canada started making the same slashes and cuts. And so by now it's, it's become a very different city. People who followed the uh, saga of Rob Ford, the now-deceased mayor of Toronto who was caught smoking crack and procuring prostitutes and uh, beating up other members of city council and uh, doing all manner of terrible things, including uh, vindictively tearing out a fresh bike lane 
to make the point that Toronto would no longer wage war on cars, <laughs> we'll know that Toronto is not the city it once was. Mm. Oh, so there's been some changes. Uh, you mentioned that a uh, very uh, diverse uh, city. Canada, I think, still does have a reputation as being fairly welcoming immigrants, refugees. Uh, well, I think that it coasted on that reputation for about 12 years of uh, Conservative Party rule, during which Canada was was uh, profoundly unwelcoming. It, it um, uh, made its migration policy a lot harsher. It uh, ceased to accept refugees at the rate that it had historically done it. It actually uh, was among the worst performing nations in accepting refugees from the uh, um, Syria and, and, and the region. Uh, there was a change in government this year uh, that seems to have reversed many of those things. But I think that Canada's international reputation um, was was mostly about what it had done, not what it was doing for about the last decade. Hmm. Not not least that Canada's international reputation was, um, I think, for people who paid attention, quite sullied by its contribution to climate change. Canada's uh, oil sands, uh, tar sands, produced the dirtiest oil in the world. Uh, and uh, Canada was one of the worst performers on international climate treaties and also worked very hard uh, under the previous government to scuttle those treaties. I want to just go back to the, just a little bit to you, to your uh, growing up years. Uh, interesting, you have this on your website. By the way, the website is uh, craphound.com. Um, this is uh, by Alex Scott, special to the Globe and Mail. Uh, I'll just quote this paragraph. As a Toronto teenager, Cory Doctorow spent many happy after-school hours at the Spaced Out Library, the science fiction collection founded and run by the writer and socialist uh, Judith uh, Merrill. Sounds like a very interesting place to to spend a lot of time. Yeah, the Merrill. Well, it's called the Merrill Collection now. Judith Judy wouldn't let them name it after her until she was dead, but uh, she died uh, well more than a decade ago, and uh, it's since been renamed the Merrill Collection. It's the largest science fiction public reference collection in the world, uh, and Toronto also has the uh, the oldest science fiction bookstore in the world. And so, as a young science fiction reader. Uh, Toronto is an exceptionally cool place to grow up. It had great public transit. I would, you know, scrounge a, a subway token and uh, and head downtown and stop at the science fiction bookstore and clean out their 25-cent rack of anything good that was in rough shape in their, in their used section. And then I'd go to the science fiction reference library and read original manuscripts by Harlan Ellison or uh, rare uh, books out of the stacks or just visit their circulating collection. They, they remain an absolutely astounding library that it really is one of the jewels of the Toronto Public Library system. Uh, and I leave my papers with them, so they have all the ah, okay. papers. So why, as a young man, and I don't have to explain this to, you know, those who, uh, a lot of people love science fiction, why science fiction? Well, I think it had a lot of different appeals. Um, you know, I think science fiction is a, a literature that, uh, some of its practitioners have kidded themselves that they were doing something predictive. I don't think it's ever been very good at predicting the future. You know, science fiction makes a lot of predictions. It would be alarming if none of them came true, for the same reason if you throw a lot of darts, it would be alarming if none of them hit the board. But it doesn't actually perform well statistically. But what it does do is reflect back the fears and aspirations that people have about technology. And technology you know, has, has made some profound changes to the way that we live our lives. Uh, it, it, we, we live in the Anthropocene, an era in which the major factor about the climate and geography of our home planet is um, determined by activities by humans, not, not 
for example, uh, anaerobic bacteria or, or other uh, organisms that have shaped the, the planet in years gone by. Um, we have wired together our 21st century using this general purpose computer network called the Internet. Uh, we have general purpose computers that can do marvelous things. For the first time in human history now, we can, um, with a, a single computer, compute all the problems that we know about. It uh, used to be that um, if you wanted to solve a specific kind of problem, you built that computer. You built a, an election tabulating machine or a, a ballistic table calculating machine. Now we just have one computer design. Uh, it's the same computer design that's in a mobile phone and in a laptop and in a supercomputer, and it runs all the programs. So it's a, you know, it's a new fact, something that we've never had before. And we also have cryptography, which allows us for the first time to encrypt messages that are it's just such a nicety that even the most powerful governments on Earth can't decipher them without our help, uh, which, again, is not something that, that normal people have ever had within their range. So these have profound social implications. And reading science fiction is a good way to get your head around some of the thought experiments, some of the deep-seated anxieties, and some of the, the hopes that people have for what this technology can do for us or to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, particularly good to, to explore some of those things. Uh, that is true. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour, he is a science fiction novelist, blogger, and technology activist, Cory Doctorow. And uh, following a break, we'll get into a discussion of uh, privacy and later in the hour, intellectual property in our digital world. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting The Odd Couple and The Three Musketeers as part of the 2016 season in Cedar City. Information at bard.org. Comedian Hari Kondabalu tackles politics, race, and gender on his new album, Mainstream American Comic. Next time on Q, guest host Rachel Giza will ask him about the challenge of being a political comedian in 2016. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Today at 1, right here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Cory Doctorow is co-editor of the popular web blog Boing Boing. He's a contributor to The Guardian, Publishers Weekly, Wired, and many other newspapers, magazines, and websites. He's a special consultant to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And uh, he's also the award-winning author of numerous novels, including Little Brother, Homeland, and uh, Walk Away. We're pleased to have him with us uh, for the hour. I'm going to quote uh, Matthew Patulski, English professor at University of Utah. Uh, he says it very well, uh, talking about some of the, 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 the interests that, that you have and the, the, the fights that you're fighting. Um, he was organizer of the event at University of Utah in April. Uh, he says, Gary Cordoctor is a strong and articulate champion of the right to secrecy and personal freedom in the digital realm. He's argued for the importance of strong encryption technologies and against surveillance by governments and business, as well as any effort to limit people's ability to share content and freely express themselves on the Internet. I want to start with uh, something you have up on, on your website, an article you recently uh, wrote comparing the fight for privacy to the crusade against uh, smoking. I thought that was a very interesting uh, comparison. Sure. Um, let, me, let me first quibble very gently with Matthew about that description. I'm, I'm not necessarily an advocate for secrecy. Uh, I'm an advocate for privacy. Uh, uh, privacy isn't secrecy, right? Like, I, I know what you did in the bathroom this morning. It's not a secret. It's the same thing I did and that everyone listening to this did. 
but it takes a special kind of person to want to share that with the world, right? And I think that most of us can agree that it's reasonable that people get to decide who gets to see them do that private thing. It doesn't make it secret. It just makes it something that's no one else's business. And I think that not having a, uh, a realm in which you get to decide what's no one else's business is, is a profound shift in the way that we live our lives. Um, this notion of, of privacy as a public health issue, I think it, it's uh, a good analogy. Um, you know, public health issues tend to be dominated by uh, uh, activities where the effects of the activity are separated by a lot of time and space from the activity itself. You know, you don't get good at, at hitting a ball with a bat by waiting for the pitcher to, uh, to throw the ball, swinging the bat, closing your eyes, and running home, and then waiting six months for someone to tell you whether or not the bat connected with the ball, and then trying to remember what you did that time in order to get better at it. You know, usually if we have an immediate feedback loop between what we do and what happens as a result, we can improve how we do it. We can, we can get better at doing it safely and doing it well, but when you smoke a cigarette, nothing bad happens. Uh, but if you smoke enough cigarettes over enough time, something bad will almost always happen. And there isn't any one puff that will make your uh, um, cancer appear. There's no single uh, direct line relationship between any puff on a cigarette and any tumor that you might someday have. But uh, there is a statistical relationship between the mass of smoking activity you engage in and your long-term health outcomes. And that's not dissimilar to privacy. Uh, if you make enough privacy disclosures, eventually some of them will come and bite you in the butt. Uh, it, 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 it isn't any one predictable relationship between a privacy disclosure or even a privacy breach and something bad. You know, for example, um, there are a lot of people who several years ago had their MySpace passwords leaked. Right? MySpace hardly exists anymore, but they dumped a giant file of passwords and usernames. And that data is still kicking around on the internet. And it's being recombined with other data, other leaks from companies like LinkedIn to see what um, usernames are, uh, are common to both data sets. And then to try the passwords that leaked out of MySpace on LinkedIn. Well, now that's a lot more interesting because, you know, if I want to defraud your friends, I can learn an awful lot by looking at your LinkedIn uh, um, profile. Or better yet, if there's a third data set, say one leaked by the, the giant target that has your credit card details in it, and I want to use those credit card details in combination with your personal information from LinkedIn to uh, fraudulently request your IRS uh, rebate this year, as happened to millions of people this year, um, then I can combine those three sets. So it's very hard to predict when you log into MySpace and use a password or when you log into LinkedIn and give some personal information, or when you swipe a credit card at Target and combine that with your um, uh, loyalty card, it's hard to predict that all of that data will breach and be liable to being recombined and what the eventual outcomes will be. And so this puts privacy disclosures into this um, uh, class of problems that are extremely hard to solve, where uh, it's, it's really hard to get people to even acknowledge that there is a problem uh, you'll remember that during the smoking wars, 
there was a lot of debate about whether smoking was even bad for you. And if it was bad for you, how bad it was for you. You, you know, you, you, you've seen those old ads that say nine out of ten doctors prefer camels and smoke lucky strikes and it won't give you a sore throat. Right. Uh, there even used to be ads advising high school athletes to smoke cigarettes to improve their wins, right? And with, with uh, um, little uh, endorsements from, from possibly fictitious doctors. Uh, and uh, in the same way, there are a lot of people who benefit from there being ambiguity about whether and how privacy can harm you. You know, some of the, the highest paid executives in technology have gone on record saying that they don't even think that privacy is an issue anymore. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg said privacy is dead. Uh, so did uh, the old CEO of, um, of Google, Schwartz. And, and both of them have taken extraordinary measures to protect their own privacy. You know, for example, uh, Google, our, our um, Facebook CEO, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, he bought the four adjacent houses to his Silicon Valley house and left them empty so that he wouldn't have neighbors who could invite journalists in to point long lenses out of the windows to spy on him. And when he built a, a summer home in Hawaii, he bought 100 acres of land around it to leave empty so that he could have 100 acres of private property that he could fence off and stop uh, snoopers from coming in. And so when these people say that, they, that privacy is dead, what they really, I think, should be understood to be meaning is uh, that I would be a lot richer if you would stop acting like you had any expectation of privacy. And so you have that ambiguity, too, that deliberately manufactured ambiguity about privacy that, that also mirrors a lot of public health debates. You know, in the U.K., the old uh, drugs czar, the, the person in charge of, of national drug policy, David Nutt, uh, uh, did some academic research showing that independent uh, alcohol abuse information stopped people from drinking too much, whereas the alcohol abuse information provided from the industry had a negligible or even uh, inverse effect on the people who were exposed to it. And the profits from the alcohol industry in the U.K., are almost entirely driven by binge drinking. If you remove binge drinking from uh, the alcohol consumption in the UK, most uh, alcohol companies either break even or lose money. Their, their profit margin is entirely driven by unsafe drinking habits. And yet, there is this intense lobbying by the alcohol industry to let them be in charge of any kind of public education campaign. So these public health problems are very pernicious. But there's a thing that happens with them uh, that you know, you may have noticed that these days smoking is something that's increasingly fraught. We, we treat smoking as an aberration, and it's not considered beyond the pale for a government to announce that its goal is to eliminate smoking altogether within our lifetime. And the way that we got there was that there was a tipping point, a kind of peak indifference moment, when the number of people who had direct experience of the potential harms from smoking, who themselves had, had uh, become ill, or who had lost people they loved to tobacco-related illness, when, when the number of people who cared about smoking was only going to go up from there on in, when it was never going to go down. And at that moment, the job of tobacco campaigners shifted from being uh, in charge of trying to make people care about smoking to in charge of trying to make people understand that these smoking harms were preventable, that named individuals benefited from them and uh, manufactured the, uh, the false debate about whether those harms were real, and that something could be done. And they were, they, their mission became to prevent nihilism, you know, the kind of resigned idea 
that uh, because you've got uh, you've been smoking for all these years, cancer is inevitable, and there's not really anything you can do about it. You might as well enjoy those last few cigarettes before you die, and change that into a kind of righteous fury that that uh, affected real change in our society. And I think we're reaching that moment in privacy. I think that we've uh, accumulated so much toxic personal information in these badly maintained storehouses uh, run by private industry and government. And all of that data is going to leak someday. And so from now on, every couple of weeks, you know, between 1 and 20 million people are going to wake up to realize that their lives have been destroyed by privacy breaches. And they're going to come back to privacy campaigners and say, you're right all along. What do I do now? And if we have an answer for them, as opposed to it's too late, then we can make a real change. You just join us. We're talking with Cory Doctorow. Right now we're talking about privacy. We'll talk about some related issues as we go along. Um, so I want, just want to underline uh, the seriousness of, of what you're talking about. Uh, I was shocked reading a, a few of these examples that you, that you give. Uh, you say, quoting for your article, the bad news is that 20 years of failing to convince people the risk of online privacy has built up a reservoir of inevitable harms. I just want to read three of these, and you give more than this. Uh, people will have their houses stolen uh, from under them by identity thieves who forge their deeds. Uh, quote, uh, in parentheses, this is already happening, you say. Hackers will spy on them through their baby monitors, cars, set-top boxes, and medical implants. This is already happening. And uh, they will have uh, sensitive information they disclose to the government to obtain security clearance breached and warehoused by blackmailing enemy states. This is already happening. Just three examples from, from your article I think a lot of us don't, we don't key in on the, the, this possibility. Well, that's true. I mean, it is really true that most of us, you know, have, have not really noticed or have forgotten about the little news blips caused by all of those problems. You know, last summer, Chrysler had to recall 1.4 million Jeeps that could be driven over the Internet because they had inadequate information security. Uh, in January, um, family in San Francisco made headlines because um, their three-year-old kept complaining that the baby monitor, what he called the phone, was scaring him at night. And one night, the mom was walking past his bedroom and heard a strange voice swearing at her child from the baby monitor. And when she walked in, the baby monitor's camera swiveled around to look at her, and this strange voice said, uh-oh, mom's in the room. And, you know, I think those of us who heard about it were like, gosh, that's, that's weird and terrible. But many weird and terrible things have happened since, and we may have forgotten it. We may also forget that um, every American who ever applied for security clearance with the Office of Personnel Management and who was required as part of that process to disclose the most intimate, potentially harmful facts of their lives, anything that could ever be used to blackmail them, you know, the, the fact that your mother attempted suicide or that you have a brother who has a heroin problem or that um, you had a, 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 an affair with someone of the same sex as you and you identify as straight, um, all of those things were put in this government database run by the Office of Personnel Management, which the Chinese government proceeded to hack and extract all the data from, and which is now sitting on Chinese servers, and which, as far as we can tell, is being already being used to blackmail government officials. And so it's true that most of us who weren't directly touched by those incidents have probably forgotten that they ever happened, but the people who were touched by those incidents remember it very keenly. And that's what I mean by peak indifference, that people who don't experience this as a blip in the news cycle, but instead wake up to discover that a real estate agent has sold their house while they were on holiday uh, for cash uh, 
sue someone who has left the country and whose identity can't be traced, who somehow showed up at the real estate agent's offices with a duplicate deed for their house, those people are never going to forget that this happened, right? That is, that is, a, that is not a thing that you walk away from unscathed, let alone, for example, the um, hundreds of people who've had their browsers breached by identity thieves and voyeurs who then proceeded to spy on them through their webcams and then to extort them to perform sexual acts on camera by showing them the incidental nudity that they'd captured and threatening to release it into their social media accounts. Uh, the FBI raided 100 of these people last year, and the most prolific of them had over 400 victims. Miss Teen USA in 2013 was victimized by one of these people. And so those people, they're not forgetting this. They're not walking away from it. This is, these are live issues to those people that um, they're going to demand policy outcomes to uh, improve. So what is the, what's the prescription, then? What do you, what do you recommend, uh, I guess, collectively? Well, that, there's two ways to think about this, right? One is how we make these systems work better, and that's a, that's a, a really, really complicated question. And the other one is how we make them fail better. And that's, thankfully, a, a much simpler question. And graceful failure is far more important than adequate functionality. What, what we really care about in a car, if we're smart, isn't how fast it can go from zero to 60, but whether or not the brakes work. Uh, and so um, the, the information security, like all other security domains, relies on disclosure as a way of uh, finding problems and patching them. You know, anyone can design a security system that he himself can't think of a way of breaking. But all that means is that you've designed a security system that works on people who are stupider than you. And unless you're the smartest person in the world, that security system is probably not adequate. And so in information security, it is an absolute truism that we tell people how security works and we rely on them identifying vulnerabilities and disclosing them in a timely manner in order to allow the good guys who are trying to keep the systems running to compete with the bad guys who are discovering the same vulnerabilities but failing to disclose them. And so we really need uh, two interventions in our policy two principles to be upheld in our policy to enact this graceful failure. And the first one is that um, true facts about the security and security vulnerabilities of systems that you rely on should always be legal to disclose. And unfortunately, that's not the case right now. Uh, there are federal statutes like the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act that um, makes it a felony to, uh, quote, exceed your authorization on someone else's computer. And what this means is that security researchers who do things like look at whether or not the websites that are collecting your credit card information are adequately storing them, if they violate the terms of service of that website, which almost certainly say you're not allowed to try variations on the, the login process or other things that would expose these, these flaws, um, if they violate the terms of service, they arguably commit a felony. Aaron Swartz, uh, the independent researcher, scholar, and activist, hanged himself in 2013 after being charged with felonies that carried a 35-year prison sentence for violating the terms of service on a scientific article website that he had access to through MIT's network. Um, and so we need to amend the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And the ACLU has just launched a lawsuit arguing that the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is uh, unconstitutional. Um, these, uh, there's another statute called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA, that has a provision, Section 1201, that makes it a felony 
to break a copy protection system or digital rights management system, even if you're doing so for a legal purpose. And so if you have a car that has a security system that on the one hand keeps hackers out, but on the other hand stops you from accessing or copying its operating system, then investigating that uh, security system to determine whether or not it keeps hackers out uh, will make you run afoul of the law that restricts you from removing the locks on your car's copyright protection system, which means that you also commit a felony, which means that the security researchers who discover those bugs are apt to never come forward with them or to delay their disclosure of them. Last year, the Copyright Office held, held hearings on this, and they heard that this statute interferes with timely disclosure of showstopper vulnerabilities in voting machines, medical implants, agricultural equipment, including tractors, automotive devices, as well as phones, laptops, thermostats, and the uh, burgeoning universe of Internet of Things devices. And so we need to amend or remove these statutes because there should never be a structural impediment between someone who knows that you shouldn't be relying on a system and them informing you about that, about that uh, caveat. And then the other principle that's really important is that whenever you have a system that is designed to accept orders from remote parties, and that's a lot of systems now, you know, your, your phone uh, can be uh, required to give up its location. If you've lost it, you can use a locate my phone app. So you can give it an order remotely. Whenever you're, you have a device that's designed to get an order from a remote party, if that order is in conflict with what the owner of the device wants it to do, the owner should always win. So, you know, for example, the World Wide Web Consortium is standardizing a system to stop you from saving Netflix videos and other kinds of online video uh, called an encrypted media extension. And the idea is that if you give your computer an order while you're watching a Netflix video, if you say, save this video for later, your computer is designed to um, refuse to do that when it's running this standardized software the World Wide Web Consortium is making. And that's just bad design because we really want computers to be responsive to their owners because if it turns out that someone hacks that encrypted media extensions program and is able to run code that is against your interests using it, that by design, that program won't let you stop it, won't let you inspect it. In fact, it'll try to hide its existence from you. And so we need, again, these two principles to be upheld. The owner always gets to tell the, her computer what to do, and true facts about the security of your computer are always fair game for disclosure. And if we can do that, we can go a long way to making sure that our devices fail gracefully, even though the problem of making them work well will remain very hard. You're uh, listening to Access Utah, and we're uh, talking with science fiction novelist, blogger, and technology activist Cory Doctorow. Uh, we're talking about technology, privacy, and intellectual property. We'll get into that a little uh, later in the conversation, the next uh, segment. In the next segment, I'll ask Cory Doctorow what we as individuals, what I can do to protect myself in this digital age. More following break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. Electrolysis of water, known as water splitting, is a chemical reaction in which water is separated into oxygen and hydrogen. Efficient and cost-effective water splitting remains the holy grail for widespread affordable energy production from sustainable energy inputs such as wind and solar. Known catalysts produce either oxygen or hydrogen, but not both. 
With support from a Governor's Energy Leadership Scholars Grant, USU chemist Yuji Sun and students are advancing knowledge of bifunctional catalysts that can simultaneously and cost-effectively produce both oxygen and hydrogen. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members in the Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. Porgy and Bess with full orchestra now through August 6th in Logan. Porgy, a crippled man living on Catfish Row, has fallen for Bess, a troubled woman. Details at utahfestival.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have with us for the hour science fiction novelist, blogger, and technology activist Cory Doctorow. Cory Doctorow is co-editor of the web blog Boing Boing. He's a contributor to The Guardian, Publishers Weekly, Wired, and many other newspapers, magazines, and websites. He's a special consultant to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. His award-winning novels include Little Brother, Homeland, and Walk Away talking about technology, privacy. We'll get into a discussion of intellectual property in our digital age as well. You're welcome to join the conversation by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Um, I wonder about, uh, personally, so, you know, take take me, for example. How, how can I better, as an individual, guard my privacy to make sure the information is not floating out there that people could aggregate and do harm to me? Well, uh, you know, uh, there are some measures you can take and should take, right? You can run um, free and open source operating systems. I use a a version of Linux called Ubuntu, U-B-U-N-T-U, which is great. It runs really well on old hardware. If you're setting up a computer for a kid going away to college or for a a relative who doesn't have a computer of their own, you're getting rid of an old computer, you can run Ubuntu on it really easily. And because it's free and open, all the code is open to inspection. And so bugs are, are easier to surface and fix. Um, you can use privacy-equipped browsers. So uh, there's a, an extension from the Electronic Frontier Foundation who I do some contract work for called Privacy Badger that uh, protects your privacy while you're looking at the web. Um, you can turn on privacy options in your operating systems on your mobile devices and on your laptop. Uh, you can turn on full disk encryption and so on. And all this stuff may sound technical and daunting, and to a certain extent it is. It's a little harder to use than it should be. But, you know, the real problem here is that um, privacy is a team sport. So the fact that, like, say, you know, you stop using Facebook, which, you know, Facebook is really designed to trick you into disclosing more information than you intended to. If there's stuff you've never told Facebook that an advertiser might want, Facebook will, like, present quizzes to you or to your friends to try to get that information out, to round out your profile to make you more valuable to an advertiser. So you may decide never to use Facebook, but your friends are still using Facebook, and they're tagging you on photos, and they're identifying you within the system. And so we need to have not just an individual response, although that's really important, and I don't want you to get the impression that there's nothing you can do. You can go a long way individually. But we need a social response. We need rules about what data can be collected. We need um, uh, insurance companies to wake up to the fact that they're insuring companies that store tons and tons of potentially harmful data, and they're pricing it as though the only risk of that data is that maybe the hard drive will fail, 
as opposed to maybe it will destroy 10 million people's lives who will eventually figure out how to get a judge to force the company to pay that money back. So we need market-based solutions, too, where insurers force companies to internalize those costs rather than outsourcing the cost to the rest of us. Because if you lose your house because someone mishandles your data, chances are that a court today is going to award you pennies. You know, the, the last time there was a big credit card breach, the class action suit got 33 cents per customer, plus a, a six-month um, uh, gift certificate for credit monitoring service. And so who pays for all those costs? Well, we do. The taxpayers do. We pay to help those people whose lives have been ruined and to try and put them back together. We pay in the cost of them losing their jobs or losing their homes or whatever. Um, and so, you know, if companies had to pay those costs themselves, they'd be a lot less cavalier about gathering that data. And then we also need to uh, change the way that governments relate to that private data for law enforcement purposes. You know, in, in 1989, when the uh, former East Germany fell, it had the most extensive spy network in the world. They were called the Stasi. And one in 60 people in the Stasi, uh, in, the, in East Germany, worked for the Stasi, either as a snitch or as a, an officer. And today, the NSA has managed to spy on people not by having a ratio of 1 to 60, but by having a ratio of 1 to 10,000. And the way that they're able to do it so much more cheaply and efficiently is they don't pay for the spying. We do. We voluntarily have all this data collected on us through our mobile devices, our laptops, our online services, and our computer-enabled world. Um, and if we expect government to ever put the brakes on that kind of commercial surveillance, we, we have to first break their dependence on it as their uh, you know, overall keystone of their strategy for the war on terror and also for building these giant civil service empires that individual people who are highly placed in government, that their jobs rely on. And so, you know, some people say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about the government because I, I trust them, but I think that, you know, Facebook or Google or Apple can't be trusted with my data. And some other people say, oh, well, you know, the government can't do anything right, but these private companies aren't going to do anything stupid with my data. And the reality is that uh, government data and private sector data are the public-private uh, public partnership from hell. They're a self-reinforcing system that relies on one another. And so we have to break that link as well. And so you individually can't solve that, but you as a voter can solve it. You as someone who supports organizations like the ACLU or the Electronic Frontier Foundation or other organizations that promote both individual and social liberty uh, can make a difference that way. We're talking with uh, Cory Doctorow. Um, I, I wanted to change gears and talk about copyright in this digital age. Uh, you have said uh, old copyright rules aren't suited to to the web. I, I believe you're opposed to digital rights management. This is the you know the the lock. We're all familiar with this. You get an electronic book, and you you don't just get a PDF and take it wherever you, you want. Uh, there's a lock on it. Yeah. Well, I think it even goes beyond that. That, I mean, obviously is, is dumb, right? No one woke up this morning and said, you know what I want? I want to replace my music collection with uh, something that does less than my records, right? People, people want all that freedom. It's kind of an anti-product, digital rights management. And, uh, and, and it can only ever cost companies sales, right? The, the, no one has ever bought something because it had digital rights management. They either didn't care or, or didn't know uh, and if they did know, they were probably hostile to it. But the real problem is that copyright is, has always been an industrial regulation. 
right? Like I'm I'm in the entertainment industry, right? I write novels. They help you like pass the long hours between the cradle and the grave by briefly entertaining you. And so uh, I use copyright as the framework for negotiating my relationship to other people in my industry. My publisher, Paramount uh, Features, which has got one of my books, with my agent, with uh, foreign publishers who sublicense my work. And, you know, I have a, an agent who is an expert in copyright. I have become something of an expert in copyright as someone who uses that to, to, um, as the framework for my own uh, industrial relations. But that doesn't mean that, like, you as an average individual are part of my industry and can ever hope to understand its contours or should, right? Uh, we used to use making or handling copies as our, as our litmus test for whether you were in the entertainment industry. If you were making or handling a copy of a book, you have to have a printing press. And if you're making a copy of a record, you have to have a record factory. And so everybody who made copies was perforce part of the industry. And so we said, you have to obey the industry laws. Right? So think of this as, as being analogous to like finance rules, right? We, it would be great to have some meaningful finance rules. We have finance rules that say things like, if you have a transaction that's over a certain number of dollars, that uh, transaction has to be uh, regulated by SEC rules. There has to be some disclosure. There's lots of stuff that goes on in, in finance. Uh, when you get to a certain number of dollars that doesn't happen below that, because we assume that once you're at that certain number of dollars, you are doing something that is financial as opposed to merely monetary. Um, now, if we had hyperinflation, and tomorrow it cost a million dollars to buy a sandwich, buying a sandwich for your friend wouldn't make you into a bank. It would just make you someone who is doing something monetary as opposed to financial. And we would, in order to make those rules coherent and meaningful, we would change our test for who was in the finance industry. Now, copying has had this kind of hyperinflation. Everything you do with a computer involves making a copy, right? The way that a file gets from one server halfway around the world to your screen is by it being copied dozens or even hundreds or thousands of times on its way to your screen. And the fact that you are making a million copies before breakfast does not make you part of the entertainment industry. And it's not realistic to expect that you or that your 12-year-old kid who's in her parents' basement in Provo making a Harry Potter fan website is ever going to figure out how to navigate this abstruse, highly technical set of industrial regulations, and nor should they, right? If, if what you need to do, do to do culture as opposed to industrial entertainment, if what you need to do to do culture starts with getting a four-year law degree and then specializing in intellectual property law, then you can be sure that almost everybody is going to be an outlaw. Almost everyone is going to be on the wrong side of the law. I'm uh, reading this article from uh, the Globe and Mail, Alex Scott's article. So uh, he's saying you practice what you preach. Um, apparently you sell the print rights to conventional publishers, but then you you put the your books online for free. You go on to say... Creatives have to adjust their approach to the new era. It's no good, you say, shaking your fist, telling the Internet to get off your lawn. Musicians, filmmakers, and writers have to start thinking of themselves as dandelions, not mammals. What did you mean by that? Sure. Well, and, you know, I, my publishers do electronic editions, too. I just okay. have shareable ones uh, that people can try before they buy. And, you know, when, when uh, my wife was pregnant with our daughter, she's eight now. Well, when my wife was pregnant with our daughter, I had this conversation with this other writer, Neil Gaiman about uh, reproductive strategies. 
I said, you know, it, I've, I've suddenly realized that, like, for a mammal, reproduction is a seriously big deal, right? You know, you, you put a lot of energy and you pin a lot of hope on your reproductive act. Um, by comparison, you know, you think about what a dandelion does. It blows 2,000 seeds into the winds every spring, and it doesn't care if all those seeds germinate. It just wants to know that every opportunity for germination is seized upon by its progeny, that every crack has a dandelion growing in it, not that every seed turns into a dandelion. And the price of copying has crashed, right? It costs nothing to make a copy of a thing on the internet, which suggests that our optimal strategy shouldn't be to care about the destiny of every copy, but rather to care about what happens with every opportunity to realize a sale. It's not important to me that everybody who reads pays me. It's much more important to me to make sure that everyone who might pay me gets a chance to read, knows that my book exists, has someone they trust shove it into their hands and say, you need to read this book. And, you know, my books have been multiple New York Times bestsellers, and I get six-figure advances, and they've been translated into dozens of languages and optioned for film and stage. And so they've done pretty well off the back of that because, you know, obviously uh, choosing to give your books away doesn't mean that you are the only writer whose books are available for free. All of the books are available for free. It's our audiences who choose whether they want to pay us because every book that you've ever paid for, you can also download for free from somewhere on the Internet, and it's not hard to find. And so we need to figure out how to incentivize people to do the right thing. And you can get there by threatening people and scaring them with the, with the threat of jail time. But I think that that strategy has really... Uh, obvious limits, right? After, after a while, people you've, you've scared and terrified eventually figure out that, like, on the one hand, their chances of being caught are less than their chances of being hit by a meteor. And on the other hand, there's a bunch of other creators around there who don't think that they're crooks and who would be, uh, and who are happy to have their business. And if you have to choose whose dollar, you know, who's going to get your dollar, all things being equal, it's nicer to give your money to someone who's been nice to you than someone who's grossly insulted you. Finally, we just have a few minutes left. Um, you, you give a, a talk uh, fairly recently uh, at the Internet Archives Decentralized Web Summit um, looking at how the people who founded the web with the idea of having an open decentralized system ended up building a system that's increasingly monopolized, you say, by a few companies. And then how can we prevent the same thing from happening uh, next time? What, what are those uh, th those things that you want to prevent from happening next time? Well, you know, it, over the years, we started off with this idea that the web would be fully open and it would be designed so that anyone could link to anything uh, and anything could be connected to anything else. And, you know, the, the, the original protocols of the web were designed with that in mind. And over the years, we've eroded some of that, both through technical means and through legal means, much of which were supported by parts of the tech industry. You know, every pirate wants to be an admiral. And so even though you have companies like Google that got their start by scraping everybody else's websites to build databases, Google has turned around and supported rules that prohibit scraping Google uh, and that give their terms of service the, the force of law because they want to make sure that nobody does to them what they did to everybody else. And it's not that what Google did was bad. I use Google every day. It's, it's great. I just think that, it, that it's, it's pretty unlikely that those two guys from Stanford were the last people who would ever have a really cool idea for how to organize information. And so if we let those two guys from Stanford and the multi-billion dollar empire they started end the permissive system that let them uh, do what they did, 
then I think we can be sure that we won't get another generation of that kind of, of innovation uh, driving new products, new services, and new ways for us to interact with each other. And so I, I do worry that we're trying to put the web back into silos, back into AOL-style uh, um, containers that you can only interact with by permission. Uh, I worry that we're letting ISPs, the, the cable companies and mobile phone companies, uh, get what they want in the, in the way of net neutrality and, and giving them the right to block uh, certain web services and allow the other ones who pay them bribes to, to get through. Uh, the FCC passed a rule that was supposed to protect that, and they found a new way around it through something called zero rating, where they cap how much data you can have to well below what you're likely to use. And then they, they solicit bribes from some companies to be exempted from the data cap. And so if you watch videos from the companies that your ISP has a deal with, you can watch that and not worry about running out of data or being charged extra. But if you watch it from the companies that haven't bribed your ISP, well, then those companies uh, um, will count against your cap. And so what you can expect is that companies that are flush already, that have a lot of money, will be able to bribe their way out of having any competition. And so they'll end up being incumbent forever without any disruption and without any new services that can offer a better deal to us coming to the fore. And, and so what I propose in that talk is that in the beginning, when you know, these companies are starting out, when they're designing their protocols, when they're making up their new architecture for a decentralized web, because there's this project to re-decentralize the web, to, to make a new set of protocols to keep the web as open as possible, that when they design these protocols, when they design their licensing arrangement, when they design their frameworks, that they design them so that they irrevocably commit themselves today to never allowing those centralizing activities to take place, uh, such that in the future, when they come up against desperate moments, moments when, for example, maybe their company is run out of runway and their investors are putting pressure on them to sell out their principles, those, uh, those lines of, uh, of action, those avenues, will be fenced off from them forever. They, they won't be able to cave to the pressure. I compare that to like throwing away the Oreos the night you go on a diet, right? How do you make sure that you're not going to eat the Oreos in the middle of the night when you're weak and hungry? Just don't have any Oreos in the house, right? And, and we all understand that. We all understand that that's, the, that, that that's the smart way to do it. You don't eat the Oreos because you're weak-willed. You eat the Oreos because you failed when you had strong will to take account of the fact that your will would be weak later. And so when you are strong, you should take actions to protect yourself from when you will be weak in the future. We all have weak moments. We are out of time. We've been talking with Cory Doctorow. He's uh, co-editor of the popular web blog Boing Boing, uh, contributor to The Guardian, publishes weekly, Wired, many other newspapers, magazines, and websites. He's a special consultant to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, award-winning author of numerous novels, including Little Brother and Homeland. The latest is uh, Walkaway. Is that out now, Walkaway? No, April 2017. April, April 20th, okay. 2017, look but, for uh, that. My most recent book is uh, In Real Life. In Real Life is the most recent one. You can find out a lot more at the website craphound.com. Uh, Corey Doctorow, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Have a great day. Uh, you too. We thank you for listening, and uh, you can uh, continue to contribute to the conversation at upraxis at gmail.com. Our thanks to Corey Doctorow. Coming up tomorrow, an interesting conversation with Julie Berry, the acclaimed author of All the Truth That's in Me. Uh, she was inspired to write her new historical novel, The Passion of Dulce. While listening to a college lecture, she found online about medieval France. 
Fascinated by this history, she began a two-year dive into research of the era, learning about the lives of several medieval female mystics like Clara of Assisi and Catherine of Siena, women who rejected marriage, almost unheard of at the time, and bucked the authority of the church with their own religious visions. We'll talk about The Passion of Dulce and others of Julie Berry's books and look at many parallels, surprising number of parallels between that history in France, medieval France, and today's world. Julie Berry, The Passion of Dulce, tomorrow. Hope you'll be with us. It's time for Utah StoryCorps, everyday people sharing their stories at the StoryCorps recording booth in Vernal. Spry 93-year-old Clara Price recalls her elopement at the age of 16 to her husband, Dan Price, who joined her in the StoryCorps booth. We're in school in, in Vernal, and we had to go there for high school for, well, for 7th, 8th, and 9th grade, and then we went on to high school there. And uh, we met the people, uh, people around, and that's how um, I met my husband, Dan. He was student body president at the time, and, and we just really enjoyed going out together and doing things together, and we ran away and got married. That was on a Sunday, and we had gone out for a ride with a friend, her boyfriend, and we ended up over in Craig, Colorado, and the boy said, uh, let's us get married, and I said, no, I've got to go on to school. I've promised my folks I would. I'd got to go. And they, and so they, Dan said, well, if we can get marriage license, can you, will you marry me? And so I said, well, I don't think you can get one on Sunday. Or at least I thought to myself, you can't get it on Sunday. I'll be just fine. So, yes, I will. Anyway, they got out of the car and went over to the building where the, the courthouse, where the recorder would have been. And what do you know? The door was locked. Good. Well, I was safe. No, the window was up. They crawled in the window, and there was the recorder that could make out the wedding license. And I swear he did. And I was too young. I was just 16, and oh, I would have been 17 in that October, but this was in the first day of May. Anyway, they got that, and, they, and I thought, well, they'll never be able to get anybody to marry us because it's Sunday, and I know that nobody would do it. So I, I still was being game, and we had gone out to dinner, and he'd spent all the money he had, so I didn't think we'd get it. He didn't tell me he'd done that. He'd spent all of his money, but anyway, we went to pay for the marriage license, and he didn't have enough money. He had to borrow it because he had just come home from college because he'd ran out of money and about starved out, so we had to come home. He'd only had He'd had two, uh, one year at BYU. When we got to the place where that man would marry us, sure enough, he said, if you come back at five minutes after midnight, it will be Monday morning and I will marry you. And so that's what happened. We did. We got married. And he had told the boss that he was working for that he had broken down on the way and couldn't get to work that night. And we all the way home, we figured out how we'd get out of this. And I decided well, maybe what we could do was go and tell somebody who was in charge that we were too young to be married. When this happened and we got home that night, why I told my mother and her false teeth fell right out onto the bed. But she called my dad. We was out at the ranch, of course, because we were in Vernal living that time in the wintertime to go to school. And she called my dad, and he came in. And I saw him coming up the walk. And I went to the door, and I opened the door. And he says, well, Clara, you hit me under the belt this time. 
because he was sure I was going to go on, I was going to be a lawyer. Was what they, we'd all decided I was going to do with my life, and they were saving money to do so, and my sister was then working in Idaho, and so that fell through. I'm not a lawyer for sure. <laughs> Support for this segment of the Utah StoryCorps Project is made possible in part by our members and Memory Mark, helping families to preserve and relive precious memories that help keep us connected to the people we love. Information at memorymark.com.